From VinePair's New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Friday VinePair podcast. And you know, guys, we've been doing the Friday VinePair podcast for a while now, and it just felt like, you know, just like we have sort of the stuff we've been drinking on the Monday pod, we need to have something some structure i mean we tried to do shows <laughs> yeah don't try to put me books. in a box adam people people sent us hate mail people didn't like people it. like i don't care specifically what adam watches on tv <laughs> uh so i thought it would be a good thing look i know a lot of you are definitely readers of the site as well but some of you actually it's funny when you email in uh to podcast.com you really talk about how you consume us just through the pod and maybe you don't even know that we have a publication i think you probably do but just in case <laughs> I would like to highlight some of the amazing articles, uh, and we—I mean, we have the editor in chief on this podcast, <laughs> right? So, like, come on, we gotta like help her hit her numbers, guys. <laughs> so, so uh, I thought we—I thought it'd be fun though. Like every Friday, we talk about a few of the the, the the articles that we were really excited about this week, sort of what they were. Maybe some of them down the road turn into larger conversations. But you know, it's Joanna, because you are the editor in chief of Fine Pair. Um, what 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 article were you the most sort of engaged with this week? Which one did you think you know? was the most interesting and people should check out probably the um best drinking moments from succession no I'm just oh. kidding. <laughs> i'm just kidding Cop out. um no well i know that these are the articles that you want to talk about as well adam <laughs> yeah so um we had a really great piece about wine bars in new york city from hannah um our assistant editor that i thought was interesting especially because we had that conversation ourselves earlier um last week i suppose uh but another one I thought we could talk about was Evan Rail's latest free pour column, which was about natural wine and the, what is the right way to put it? Like not the commodification of natural wine, um, the replication of natural wine. And I thought that that was really interesting because he kind of talks about how we saw this in the beer space, like flavor and the palate kind of tending towards sour and how people are now recreating this flavor that we talk about in natural wine and kind of just it doesn't matter what grapes you use we've talked about this for many many years on this podcast a lot um but i thought he he did a really great job with that piece like you know these bigger brands could make natural wine if they wanted to but they won't because nobody's going to drink it yeah what i thought was so interesting about it is he kind of he did this exploration that we talked about in the editorial meetings a bunch, which is if a big brand, if a big company was to make mass-produced natural wine, how would they do it? And how would they do it in a way that would still allow them to check all of these boxes that a lot of people who are fans of natural wine say are the rules, right? And so I thought it was so interesting that he talks about, first of all, you would go and you would buy in bulk... Bulk wine, yeah. Organic bulk wine, mm-hmm. right, which is apparently very easy to find and can be very cheap, right? You would then let this weird natural fermentation happen. And before you let that happen, you might flash pasteurize. Strip the wine, yeah. Yeah, you would strip (laughs) it of everything because all you're looking for actually is like the Brett flavors, right? The sour sort of like tea and kombucha-esque stuff going on. And then you would just like let it rip and you'd come (laughs) up with a really goofy looking label and, you know, a fun sort of clear shiner bottle maybe, and you could very easily scale natural wine. Um, I thought it was just really fascinating, but I think what he comes to the conclusion of is talking to a lot of winemakers, this trend is so much not it's so much less of a trend than than everyone thinks it is. And probably that's because of again what we've talked about here on the podcast is, you know, 
it is a small trend happening in cities where where the majority of media reside. And so they write about it like it's this big thing, but actually in the majority of the country, no one knows about it, cares about it, is interested in it, and it just happens that it's a what is he, what is the quote he uses about the small group of people who are into it, the anti-flavor elite? Yes, yeah, I thought that was interesting. I thought it was interesting that he said like, <clears throat> you're never going to get wine drinkers to drink natural wine. Like you maybe could give them a glass and a pairing scenario, but they're never going to opt for a bottle of natural wine on a list. But it's like this younger generation or people who are new to wine who you can capture with this natural wine trend, which I thought was so interesting. Yeah, I thought so, too. All right, Adam. What else? So this was a piece I thought was really important for anyone to read who's been who's been aware of sort of this growing uh, push, especially coming out of Silicon Valley for the demonization of alcohol. And um, and I really do mean that. This is not the same as, I think, a growing inter- sobriety or sober curious movement. This is really a demonization of alcohol. Mm-hmm. And one of the, w- probably the the the, cat, the leader of this movement is Andrew Huberman, who uh, runs the Huberman Lab at Stanford and has a podcast. Um, and he has become one of the more popular podcast hosts in America. Um, He's formerly straight edge uh, from California, and he definitely uses data in terms of his, you know, supporting his stances that are anti-alcohol. But I think what the piece really does is it explores who he is and sort of his complicated past and also his complicated associations now with other sort of like very uh, conservative male, other conservative Mm -hmm. male podcast hosts, um, Hmm. and especially male podcast hosts that sort of have this ethos that I really wasn't aware of. I mean, I don't listen to Joe Rogan or people like that, but who um, their their whole sort of ultimate message is the uh, the raising up of of men, of young men, especially white men, mm-hmm. um, and the perfection of them and have it, helping them live forever and achieve perfect bodies and things like that. And so I thought all of that was really interesting because a lot of times prior to us exploring who he really was and doing this really, really amazing in-depth reporting into his background, I had always just heard of him as like, well, he's this brilliant, you know, brilliant neuroscientist from Stanford. Um, And so we have to pay attention to at least what he's saying. And while, again, he is citing data that is from studies that are recent, I think what we say is that there could be a lot of other motives there. And it's really important to be aware of what those motives are besides just saying, well, he's, you know, he's the reason I don't drink. The other thing I thought was really interesting is that what the piece also kind of uncovers is the people who he's empowering to not drink anymore and give up alcohol are sort of people that were looking for, were trying to give up alcohol anyways. And um, his sort of, he has a very famous podcast, uh, one episode that's all about alcohol that that podcast alone was like responsible for a lot of people going sober. And again, I think sobriety is really important if you need to. But um, I thought that was also interesting that it, it wasn't people. There was a lot of reporting afterwards like, oh, everyone's going sober because of Andrew Huberman. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't uh, it wasn't everyone. It was people who really did have like a substance problem and who really were having already having issues dealing with alcohol. Um, and celebrities. too. And right? celebrities. Yeah. He has a lot of celebrity followers. And mm-hmm. I think the other thing that was so interesting is it really helps explain like why because he's in Silicon Valley and he speaks to them and like he has this very 
you know, put together image. It's been crafted. He has a top tier publicist. Like he knows what he's doing. He's be, it kind of helps explain like the sober movement in Silicon Valley, which is growing right now and why that exists in Silicon Valley specifically. And mm-hmm. I think it is because he happens to also be there and, or that's happening at the same time, right? A- appeals to that person too. Right. Cause that person, there's a lot of the person we're talking about this. Unfortunately, Silicon Valley is mostly run by white men Mm -hmm. and it appeals to this desire for like if you look at the other things that have come out of silicon valley in terms of the like the p90x type trends and and Mm -hmm. that stuff and you know i mean look about bezos like decided to go into bodybuilding and he's ripped now and you know (laughs) fucking fully shaved head and like looks like he could you know he's like this specimen that's sort of that's who this is appealing to is that kind of tech bro Mm -hmm. as you would say um, really, really fascinating. This article. piece is by Jerry Fagerberg on the site. Too. It's it's mm-hmm. excellent. It's mm-hmm. it's a really excellently reported piece. Zach, uh, what about you, man? Well, let's see here. So, I think the the two things that I've enjoyed um, among you know the pieces you already mentioned, which I certainly have also read, you know, there's a part of me that just finds any kind of like story about malfeasance or like fraud to be mostly <laughs> captivating. And there was the story of the New York based Sherry Lehman uh, Wine Company. Uh, basically, probably, likely, just defrauding <laughs> its customers is maybe even giving them too much credit. Basically, just like promising them wine in the future and taking their money and then being like, uh, yeah, your wine's still coming. Don't worry. Uh, no, we had a, a, a shipping error. Uh, and just kind of doing that for years on end. And it's really sad on one hand because Cherry Lehman was like a really incredibly important wine retailer, not just in New York, but in this country in its early days. But it's also a story about how, like, you know, those those brand names that kind of linger and sometimes get taken over wholesale by other people or by other entities and then just kind of, you know, men in black style, like used as a skin suit to disguise themselves as the thing you've known uh, can be really creepy and do some really (laughs) gross things. And obviously this isn't, you know, in a way it's, you know, mostly people who are being defrauded out of money that they didn't desperately need uh you know the money you spent on bordeaux futures probably was not otherwise going to go to feed your family i hope but it's still shitty and it still sucks and i i just you know those kinds of stories are always appealing to me just because they they don't reveal a sort of you know just a piece of not just this industry but it's definitely present in this industry of the like of the scam and we talk a lot about these various kinds of scams or at least misrepresentations of things in a whole host of different ways on the uh on the pod so it's always kind of interesting to read that too and then you know i'm trying to think of what else i i really what really grabbed me and i know adam i'm not going to step on your toes but i will say that uh having been listening to every episode of dave infante's tap lines um you know as someone who was like in the middle of the industry when like the pbr the Right. PBR renaissance happened. Sorry, that was a terrible <laughs> attempt at coining a phrase. Um, that was a, a really fascinating episode. And Adam, you talk more about it. Yeah, I mean, I think so. Sticks, as he's known, I think. I think what he talked about. So I remember when when PBR was at its height. I was in indie rock, and I think what he. I think the biggest thing he talked about, and like this is something that I studied a lot in marketing, is this sort of crutch that a lot of marketers have and i know we have marketers that listen to this podcast so i'm not coming for you (laughs) um but i think that it's it's easy to try to buy cool right and that a lot of brands do this especially lifestyle brands and and lots of alcohol besides really 
fine wine, right? Our lifestyle brands, especially in the beer space and the spirit space. And then I would say in like more of the mass wine space, these are lifestyle brands and it can be really easy to think, Oh, let's just spend a lot of money on these partnerships with DJs or getting a bunch of celebrities to drink it. And, you know, as he discusses consumers, aren't stupid. They still aren't right. And now a lot of brands are doing that with high end influencers. Like, they're even more aware than ever before that these were paid and that this isn't a authentic consumption of a product, right? So, you know, what he questions in the, in the podcast I kind of love is whether or not those kinds of relationships actually ultimately pay off for a brand right. or ultimately hurt a brand. And one of the stories he tells that I think is really interesting is that, you know, so PBR was always very authentic. It came out of, you know, they, and the way they did it is they seeded themselves into culture, right? They realized they wanted to be in skater culture. And so they like, they, they made sure that the beer was available to skaters. And then they, and I saw them do the same thing at, uh, in Indie Rock, right? They just made sure that like, Hey, at festivals, PBR was available and they would give it away for free. I think he said that I think is really interesting before I tell this one anecdote that I, that I just like laughed out loud to is they were not scared to allow any of their partners, media with their ad campaigns, uh, you know, musicians, et cetera, to create the content that was authentic to them with their brand. Right. They did not have like boilerplate. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I will say that when we do brand partnerships, the brands that allow us to to reflect their brand through VinePair always have much more success with the content we create and then with actually our readership and our readership, you know, finding an affinity for the brand or rediscovering the brand, et cetera, than they do when they're like, hey, these are the talking points. Yeah. This is creative we've already come up with through our agency, right? This is what we absolutely have to have you do. This is what the campaign has to be. And he tells a story about how PBR got into, um, like, doing some music festivals. And I just loved this, that, like, they had Ice Cube mm -hmm. perform in Portland for one of their festivals. It was a time that Ice Cube was a spokesperson for Bud Light. Coors Light. Coors Light, sorry, Coors mm -hmm. Light. And he's, like, the, one of the official spokesmen <laughs> for Coors Light, but he's on stage, and, like, there's thousands of people in the audience listening to him, and they're all drinking PBR because it's a PBR music festival. And he just shouts out, no one's told him to, et cetera, <laughs> fuck Coors Light, I fuck with PBR. <laughs> right. And you're just like, and he said, like, you can't pay for like, that. Like, what a dream for you them. You can't pay for that. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, there have been, and I, I've, I've watched multiple brands do this, right? Where, especially in music, you see them, the, the ones that pop up at Coachella and Governor's Ball and all this stuff where they, like, say, okay, cool, cool, cool. We're going we're gonna to promote you, but, like, you need to wear this branded jacket. Right. And you need to come out with our bottle that's encrusted in gold or whatever. And you need to say the brand four times. And, like... That doesn't seem authentic. Every single consumer knows that's bullshit. And I think it's so interesting because now, of course, he is the head of marketing for Liquid Death. Mm -hmm. And again, I'm like, well, that makes perfect sense because Liquid Death is also a brand now that all of a sudden has this massive cool cachet that people love that is just in culture in the right ways. And I think that is something to think about when you think about some of the, you know, why certain brands in alcohol fail and why some of, you know, certain brands in alcohol succeed. The, uh, the ones that succeed overwhelmingly are always in culture. And it was just really fascinating. I think it's a larger conversation to have there. But, yeah, I, I highly recommend listening to this podcast, uh, this episode of, of Tap Lines, about the rise of PBR, especially if you are someone who's in marketing. Yeah. Um, so 
speaking of sort of being in culture or the culture of personality, uh, we've had a lot of conversations over the last few weeks uh, in the office about sort of the the personality behind the bar, especially the owner, and what happens when a bar and wine, cocktail, et cetera, becomes so synonymous with one person that it can – the two are, are one and the same. And does that ultimately help or hurt a bar when that person then is not there or when that person tries to open a second thing? And I think I have a lot of um, examples here in New York where I've seen this happen yeah. where you know a bartender or a psalm opens something – they get all this coverage for them as the person. People go there to see them. The personality takes on, you know, the, the bar becomes their personality. They are the personality of the bar. And then, you know, they decide they want to start taking some time to either go back to be with their family or whatever. And you start hearing reviews, people saying, oh, the night that so-and-so wasn't there really sucked. You know, don't go Wednesdays because they're not there. Don't go Thursdays. Oh, the weekends are horrible there now because everyone wants to be there, but it's not the same vibe. And it's because the vibe is created by the owner. Or then they try to open a second place. They're splitting time, right? And so then one of the places ultimately falls. And so, you know, I, I just was – I think it's it's one of these things that's such a risk, right? Because you obviously – if you're someone that has bona fides, you want to tout those when you open a place. And you want to be that – the per, you want to be the figurehead, right? But there there seems to be, to me, a risk of doing that for the longevity of the bar, ultimately. I think there's a risk if you're another person involved in the bar who isn't that person, <laughs> right? yeah. Like if, if you're the person in question and you're building, it's about building your personal brand, yeah. right? And I think we've seen that a lot in the last decade or so, so that it's great if you want to leave to open something else or you want to launch your own spirit or something else like that. But I think if you ultimately have partners, um, that is something as a partner I would be wary of and where it really runs a really big risk. Yeah, you definitely leave yourself kind of open to not even just that person's departure, but just what happens when they decide they want to be less present in the bar on a night-to-night basis or you decide to open another location and they can't be in both places at the same time. I mean, the the way this has been talked about uh, that I'm most familiar with is sort of in comparison to going to see like a, like a Broadway show or some sort of stage performance. And like, there's a kind of person who goes to a a show like that. And if the understudy happens to be filling in, they just are disappointed, if not outright upset. And even if, if you talk to that person in a sort of more rational moment, they recognize that these things happen. People get sick. They have other obligations. No headline performer does every single show on Broadway. It's just not possible. Certainly not for a long run. And similarly, like, you can ask a person, well, do you expect the name brand personality behind this bar to be there every single moment they're open every day of the week? Like, of course not. But that doesn't lessen the disappointment when the person goes in there, the person who's wanted that kind of, you know, whether they want to be able to interact with that person or just see them or just it makes them feel more at ease with the experience to know that the person who's famous behind this is there. I think it puts yeah a lot of strain on the bar. It puts a lot of strain on the other staff, and and it creates a sort of unrealistic setup, and a setup that's often fostered by the early days of the bar when the bar is trying to you know build some momentum, generate press, generate you know interest from drinkers. That is 
totally unsustainable. It's unsustainable even in just a single location with a, you know, celebrity bartender or some or whatever who is really dedicated to the cause and really wants to do as much as they can because people have lives. They can't live at their job. Certainly not for an extended period of time. And the people who try to do that end up burning out and doing other things, which is fine. I also think the other piece of it is kind of like, not only is it perhaps not helpful to the bar, it's not helpful to the other investors or owners or interested parties. But I also think, is it really good for the people going to the bar? Is it good for the drinkers? Because again, you put yourself in a situation where instead of kind of taking the bar at face value and saying, hey, you know, I, I really believe in this space. I think they make great cocktails or they serve interesting wines or they do their thing well it's really when it's all tied up in one person even if that person is there if they don't have time for you on a given night do you leave feeling disappointed i just it feels like a a setup where the payoff is going to be so infrequent as compared to how often it's disappointing yeah i think that that's very true and i think you know i think that it it really does cause for an owner this feeling where like it's just you got to be there and and then you really can't get away mm. and you know as opposed to trying to like say okay you were you're involved but you're not you know it's not all about your interpretation right it's it's not based on who you are as a person i think you find this a lot especially at bars from bartenders i think it's easier to separate i i have seen wine bars or wine places where it was all about the personality i think one of the one of the ones I think of that doesn't exist anymore is Pearl and Ash, where like it it got covered. Yes, it had an amazing wine program, but also like it was really covered because of Patrick Cappiello and the fact that like he would jump on the bar and he would savor champagne and people wanted to go to see him. Yeah, that's what I always heard. Right, it was like yeah, Pearl and Ash are great, but they went to see Patrick, and so you know I always have wondered, and he's never. I don't know Patrick that well, so he's never told me, but I've always wondered if, like, part of the reason that sort of he might have even left the industry as a whole to go be a winemaker was he kind of got tired of it all because then he tried to open, you know, a, a spot next door to, to Pearl and Ash. And, like, then he had to spend, you know, his split time. Then his partner, like, moved to open something in Philadelphia and he was helping do the wine program there. And, like, I think it just all became too much where it all ultimately closed. Um, right. And right, because there are those expectations for him. He needs to be there, mm-hmm. right? Like the stories, the coverage has been that there is this guy who, I mean, and look, initially that was something that helped them get press. It was that this celebrated Psalm was taking off his suit and showing who he really was. He was putting on his jeans and his, you know, his his rock tees and showing all his tattoos. And he was you know, getting down and dirty with fine wine. He was basically like just saying, fuck it, let's drink awesome shit. And I'm going to pour Raveno and I'm going to pour, pour Clo Rajard and I'm going to savor crazy grower champagnes and crew's going to flow from the mountains, right? Like that's what it was. I, I was at Bon Appetit when we did a video of Patrick Capiello sabering. Yeah. yeah. I mean, of course you were. Mm-hmm. And everyone was covering it. I mean, I remember I wasn't even in this industry then. Um, but reading about him in Eater and all this stuff, right? And But then he became inextricably tied to it. Yes. And that, I think, is what happens in wine, and it definitely happens in bars. Sure. Because you ha- even now we hear these bars that are opening all over the country. It's like it's this person's bar program, and a lot of times it's not just their program, but it's their personality. And when it's also their personality, then I think it's very hard for them to not be at the bar. Yeah. I feel like I've asked you I asked you guys this before 
in a different context, but like, do you think that drives people to go to these places? Like actually to see these people? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Hmm. I really do. Because I think in some regard, the press and we're responsible for this, right? Creates a celebrity Mm -hmm. of these people where you expect to see them when you're there because they've been someone that is a key point that's been covered. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, and they're, and they're seen as the sort of, you know, creative genius behind this space. I mean, I think, you know, we, when we talk about this, we're really kind of echoing a conversation that happened in restaurants with celebrity chefs and continues to happen, frankly. And we've talked about this from a number of different dimensions, including the perils of holding any one of these people up on a pedestal, not even if they truly are great at what they do, but, but just also being cautious that, you know, seeing them solely through that lens can be dangerous in a lot of ways. But especially with with chefs, you know, it was always funny to me. I mean, I worked in restaurants where the the owner was relatively well known. And, you know, there were people who even, you know, several decades into his span as a restaurateur would still kind of believe or hold on to a notion that like he was working the line on a Friday night. And that's just like not certainly not with a restaurant company with, you know, over 10 locations was never going to be the case and had stopped being the case long before I started working for the company because just not a feasible thing. And also like, that's not kind of, that's not the game for cooks, you know, like you, you get out of doing that kind of thing if you can, because it's tough and it's long hours and it's not great pay. And, you know, it's, it's a young person's game. And, you know, usually if you're at the point where you're well-known enough like that, you're not a young person anymore. I think in bars and, and whether wine or cocktail or whatever, it's, it's similar where we want to kind of imbue everything in the space, the the drinks on the list or the menu, the decor, the sound, everything. We kind of want to tie it to the individual person as media and, and even as just drinkers, because it tells a story that we're comfortable with and that we find appealing. But it does also, you know, the other downside to it is it really kind of blinds you to what is you know, actually being done for you, who's actually doing the work. It's even in a situation where the person you're talking about, the famous person is actually there and actually working and actually opening bottles and pouring them or making cocktails. They're still only able to do that because of a team of people working to support them. I mean, almost exclusively, maybe Mm -hmm. in an extremely tiny space where it really is a tiny team. And those just places are very few and far between and not really what we're talking about here. The last thing I want to say about this, though, that I think is also important to note here, in addition to the fact that we just kind of ignore all the other work that's being done when, when these kinds of people are held up and, and how it can be disappointing for for guests, is that it's also um, sometimes really traps you in a kind of in amber in a moment, right? Because the exact kind of thing you're describing with, with Patrick Capiello, like, I don't know how listeners responded to that description, but like, I, I mean... I was like kind of trying to avoid rolling my eyes because like that no, we whole... heard it. We heard it. Yeah, we, we always we I want you to know we always hear it. <laughs> but like that whole sentiment of like, oh, we're gonna make make fine wine approachable. Like no shade at, at Patrick or at the PR people who were behind that or that you know, various people who wrote about it covered it. Like that was a very of that moment kind of sentiment. Oh, it's yeah. not really the sentiment anymore. Right? Yeah. But I think that's the whole thing too, right? Is like even if everything lands just right, even if you have a successful bar where the famous person is at and people come and they enjoy it and they get to see them, that still is ephemeral because you've so kind of tied yourself to a a specific person, a specific moment, a specific, you know, kind of vibe that 
rarely persists beyond a few years. You know, it's just it's just so hard to do that. And in some ways, I think when you're tied to a single personality, if they don't evolve and adapt, which is hard for lots of people to do, they can kind of feel like a relic pretty quickly. Adapt yeah. or die. Adapt or die. <laughs> All right, Darwin. You're welcome. Um, (laughs) Thanks. Do you mean Darwin from Succession or Darwin like the Darwin (laughs) Darwin? Yeah, I mean, look, I do think that's why I I talked about this. Um, I think you were already out on maternity leave. Were you out on maternity leave when um, I had gone to D.C. with Naomi? Yes. Yeah. So I saw this a lot happening in D.C. and I really loved it where at these bars, one of the big uh, trends I was seeing in D.C. is that they were – on the cocktail on a lot of the cocktail menus they were naming the bartender who created the drink like an allegory Mm -hmm. which is you know was just one of the top 15 it's got nominated for a bunch of different awards and it's considered i think one of the top if not the top bar um in dc right now uh deke who's the owner and head bartender head mixologist he does that and i think i thought it was amazing like the book that he gives you when you sit down says who created the drink and I, you know, that means that you could be sitting behind the bar at any time when one of the people who created some of the drinks in the book is there bartending, right? So that you don't feel like you have to go there only when Deke is there or only when someone else potentially is there. I thought that that was a really nice thing that I, I was mentioning to Zach. I haven't seen as much in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that is a way where then Deke can open other places and Allegory will always be a place that people want to go to. Because it's not just about Deke being there and his drinks. It's about his whole team's drinks. Yeah. And the vibe they've all created together, basically. That's nice. Yeah, it is, right? Well, I hope everyone has a great weekend. Let us know what you think. If there's bars or restaurants that you have loved and lost because they were, you know, focused on one person or personality, uh, shoot us a email podcast at vinepair.com and let us know which one those are. If you have one that is still in existence and we need to check out because it's just the coolest thing ever also let us know mm-hmm. um, and Jen and Zach have a great weekend and I'll talk to you next week go read our website sounds great thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network if you love listening to this show or even if you don't but I really hope that you do as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So, the Vine Pair Podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington, in Zach Jabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered, and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.